Breath of the Wild is one of gaming's greatest examples of change paying off. Following a 30-plus year history of the Zelda franchise, the game had a tremendous amount of legacy to live up to. Establishing the Zelda formula, Ocarina had laid a groundwork in 1998 that many were convinced was unbeatable, and maybe not even worth trying to surpass. So, with this looming 20-year-old pressure, Breath of the Wild instead divulged from the path, and that has made all the difference. Or so Robert Frost told me or something, I don't even know. But in all seriousness, a quick glance at the game's accolades and praise shows that its differentiations paid off and then some. And that's why, today, I wanted to focus in on how the game tackled boss design and reorganized one of the most famous fight structures in gaming. I'm sure you're familiar with the situation. After fighting your way through puzzles and enemies in the thematic dungeon, you come across a key item upgrade that not only makes you reconsider the rest of the level design in a new light, but also echoes the optimal strategy for dispatching the dungeon's concluding boss. Using the item's main mechanic for rendering the boss susceptible and vulnerable to sword swipes, typically in a three-round pattern, you finally destroy the boss and conquer the dungeon. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with this boss structure, as it maintains a tight and almost metroidvania style of cohesion in the mechanics and elements of the game. However, this methodology is completely thrown out the window in Breath of the Wild's jump to open world. Due to a lack of elegant solutions to lock the player off from the map and having certain abilities be required for progression, the game's boss design very much needed to shift to compensate for this new gameplay style. By doing this, Breath of the Wild's game designers leaned towards forging a three-category spectrum of their boss fights. On one end of the spectrum, you'll find the game's overworld bosses. Including the likes of the grotesquely fat Hinnix, the Sandrolli Mulduga, and even the goofy and slow-moving Stone Talus, these fights are heavily defined by their open and explorative nature. Since these bosses occur due to the player entering into the boss's respective aggressive zones, their attack patterns, and more importantly the strategies for fighting them, feel more akin to an evolution of the game's typical enemy fights. The most compelling part of these fights to me is how each of the bosses can be defeated in a myriad of ways, allowing the player to experiment with their positioning just as well as their weapon combos. For example, while the Mulduga can be rendered hittable by using the provided bomb barrels of the surrounding platforms, you can also use the vibrations of bomb arrows to attack the boss, as well as dealing a massive amount of damage when it surfaces. This creates a more mini-boss feel to these enemies, yet also provides a vast differentiation of attack, as the potential brawl you could have with each and every one of them could just as easily be stopped by a well-placed ancient arrow. To contrast these boss fights, on the other end of the spectrum lies bosses such as the game's conclusion, Dark Beast Ganon. In the progression of this fight, the player is presented with the optimal strategy for winning the battle, the remarkably powerful bow of light in tandem with the steed, so that you can finish the game in true equestrian warfare. The intended impact of this is to favor an epic finale of the player's story investment in the game over the freedom seen in the game's overall bosses. Partnered with a grand symphonic score playing you off as you land the epic, final, slow-motion shot, it's no surprise that this category in particular focuses on pure emotion right to the end. Finally, serving as a middle ground between the polar split of the other two categories is the precursory fights prior to Ganon, including the four Blight bosses as well as Dark Beast Ganon's earlier form of Calamity Ganon. While these fights allow for the player to experiment with their weapon types and attack strategies more than the game's conclusion, the limited movement in each of the bosses' battle arenas de-emphasizes the overworld boss's core elements of positioning. These serve as a way to provide story and narrative connections to the player's journey, while still maintaining aspects of the freedom seen in the game's other gameplay elements. So overall, which category do I think is best for the game? While each have their own respective merits, my personal favorite would have to be the battles with the game's overworld bosses. My biggest reasoning for this is the emergent stories that result from the sandbox nature of these brawls, in comparison to the other categories. Although the Dark Beast Ganon fight does emphasize providing for an epic moment in Link's story, it loses a chunk of its charm when every player that beats that fight walks away with a very similar and streamlined tale of defeating the boss. And despite being the middleman choice here, my personal feeling during the Ganon Blight battles was that I was missing out on a chunk of the freedom I had experienced in other examples of the game's combat. And overall, that's what hits me hardest about this game. 
the freedom. The ability to carve out your own story and pioneer your strategies with the game's vast and interconnected systems and the hunt-style fights makes me giddy each time I come back to them. Or maybe it's just because I'm a Monster Hunter fan, who knows? 